One of Satan's strategies is to take clear things that God has said and muddy the waters and pretend as if what God said was not clear. In fact, that's a strategy of all liars. You see it all the time in politics. There's a statement made. It's very clear what they meant. And then somehow it comes out the other end. Well, maybe they didn't mean that. But it's true in any level. When you're talking to someone and you make a declaration and they twist your words, you're like, that's not what I said. You took my words and you twisted them. Well, that is a skill that Satan has developed. He's very skilled at taking something very plain that God says and then making it go through a number of questions and additions and changes and come out the other end, and you're not so sure that's what God said. But God's word is really clear. There are some really tough verses in the Bible, but most of what God wants us to know, it's not hard. It's very simple and it's straightforward. Um, when it comes to how do I make sure that I'm saved, when, how do I know for sure I'm a Christian, that I've been converted to Christianity, to Christ? That is a place, I think, where Satan wants to work extra hard at making everything confusing. So you go to this denomination and they make it sound one way, and you go to this denomination and they make it sound another way. That's why we're taking our time in studying biblical conversion. When you're converted to Christianity from worshiping another god or just from worshiping yourself or money or whatever, and you actually go through that conversion, how do you know you've gone through that? How do you know you're a believer? How do you know you've been properly converted? So we're studying Acts chapter 2. You can open there now, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. This is our third message now. And we've been talking about the components of biblical conversion, and we've been taking our time going through them so you can make sure you understand the process of what God is doing and what our responsibility is. I'm going to go ahead and read Acts 2, 37 to 41. This is right after Peter finished preaching a sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So they go from this bewildered crowd listening to signs of the Holy Spirit that arrived on the day of Pentecost, and they end up inside the church baptized. And so you see biblical conversion. But what are the steps or the components or aspects of it? That's what we're taking time to study. Our thesis in this mini-series has been Christian conversion is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing to be converted to Christianity. The world wants to tell us, quit trying to convert me, and we're not going to stop. We're going to keep trying to convert people because it's a beautiful thing. If, if Christian conversion is a beautiful thing, and it is, then working for somebody's conversion is a noble thing. It's a wonderful thing. You should not have to apologize because you're trying to see somebody converted to Christianity. If you're on the college campus or you're in the workplace and you're talking to someone and they turn to you and they say, are you trying to convert me? I've got a very good answer for you. It's the title of the series. Yes, I'm trying to convert you. It's a noble thing. Is a fireman trying to save people from a, a building that's burning with fire? Of course, that's what he's trying to do. And you need to make your intentions clear. Well, this text presents several components, components 
of biblical conversion. We've gone through uh, the first three already. Component number one, just for review, component number one of conversion is gospel preaching, or you've got to give them the gospel. You've got to tell them about Jesus Christ. That's what Peter did in all the verses that are before that. Told them all about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God. It's the word of God that changes people. You have no power to convert someone. You have no power to change someone. But if you speak the word of God, you don't have to be as skilled as a preacher up here. Just speak what you know, quote some verses, get out of track, tell them. God's word will do all the rest. It's interesting that God doesn't want to send angels floating around the world preaching the gospel. He wants to use you. So if you go, take the gospel, take what you know of the gospel, be straightforward with what the Bible says, God will use you to uh, bring component number two, and that is conviction of sins. Conviction of sins. All of this is review. Everybody who comes to Jesus has to come to Jesus because they were convicted, convinced they were a sinner. There are a lot of people out there and they think they're good people. They can't be Christians. The only people that can become Christians are those who come to the conclusion, I'm not a good person. And you have to work on them. You have to show them because they're comparing themselves to other people. And of course they look good. But if you compare yourself to Jesus, you don't look good. And that's the whole point. Jesus is the only life God was pleased with. They have to come to the conclusion that they've sinned. Some of their sins are bad things they've done. Most of their sins are the good things they failed to do. They haven't loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They haven't always given thanks for all things. They've got a very low standard of what they think God accepts. God accepts perfection. You're not perfect, so you're not acceptable. You have to work with them to understand what the real intent of the Ten Commandments were. What are those truths in the Bible that reveal we're not good people? We're fallen creatures. We were made good. We're no longer good. We're sinful people. And so you have to have a conviction of sin before you're going to come to Jesus. Some people go to Jesus because they want Jesus to be their life coach. They want Jesus to help them with a problem. That is not being converted. That is using Jesus to have a nice self-esteem or using Jesus to get wealthy. There's a health and wealth gospel that's out there. Those people that come to that kind of a Jesus have not been converted. It takes the, the narrow pathway of conviction of sin. I'm a sinner. I've, I've violated God's commandments. I'm not a good person. I'm going to need forgiveness. I'm going to need someone else to save me. When someone comes to that realization in their mind and they're under conviction of sins, they even might feel sorrow from it. Hopefully they will. Then you know they're prepared for conversion. And that leads us to component number three, which we spent all of last time on. And that is this, genuine repentance. You can't have conversion without genuine repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life. It is what we think of as the heart of conversion. Someone is heading one direction. They're worshiping one God. They're living for themselves. They're in a false religion. They're atheists. They're secularists. They're pluralists, whatever it is. And they realize that worldview is not the true worldview. And now they realize that, that not all worldviews are equal, not all religions are equal, and they realize they have a false religion, a false worldview, they've lived the wrong way, and now they're going to make a U-turn. They're going to turn around and come back. That is repentance. Their mind has changed, and because their mind has genuinely changed, their life changes. The purpose of their life changes. And that's why John the Baptist, when he told the Pharisees to repent, he said, you better bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, because if you say you repent and there's nothing that changes in your life, you're not now really going to do the things that God says. Then, as we quoted last week from Charles Spurgeon, your repentance needs to be repented from. 
because it's not a genuine repentance, okay? So gospel preaching or the word of God, conviction of sins, and then genuine repentance. Today we come to component number four of conversion. The sign, and listen carefully to how this is worded, the sign of water baptism. Would you focus on verse 38 again? Verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Stop there. I know we're not making it very far, but these are all very important. Baptism has been an important part of Christianity since the days Jesus walked on this earth. Baptism has always been important. Christians have always practiced water baptism. Go to the very beginning, and there were Christians. They were baptizing people. From the very beginning. This text demonstrates this because this is the first day of Christianity. This is the first Christian sermon. This is when the church was born. This is the very day it all started. There are no denominations. There's no church in Rome. There's no church in Ephesus. It's just all in Jerusalem. And here from the very first response to the first gospel presentation here, once the Holy Spirit had arrived, he says, you need to be water baptized. And you can read that with your own eyes, right? You see that. You should be convinced of that. There is no doubt at all about that. Now, the English term, baptism, is not a translation. It is a transliteration directly from the Greek language, the term baptisma. And it simply means to dunk. It simply means to submerge or to immerse somebody in something. It could literally be called, rather than the baptism, it could be called the submerging. That's literally what the word means. It does not mean to sprinkle. It does not mean to pour. Everyone baptized was, by definition, submerged in water. Their whole body went down under the water. When we had our little baptism on the back... I remember reminding people, make sure you get all of them down underneath. You know, don't, let, don't leave their nose sticking out or anything like that. Get the whole body down underneath. There is no mystery and no confusion whatsoever in the Bible about how to baptize. Could you imagine Jesus telling his disciples, I want you to baptize, and then they didn't know how to baptize. The how is in the term. Baptize means submerge them. The mode of baptism is in the word baptize. There's no doubt at all about that. You can see that as you study other passages of Scripture. When Jesus himself was baptized, do you remember where? The Jordan River, right? It says, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit of God like a dove descending upon him. Another place says they were baptizing there because there was much water. Well, if you're sprinkling, you don't need much water. It's not rocket science. It's pretty easy. Now, some people have objected and said, yeah, but how would they baptize 3,000 people in Jerusalem? And the answer is they baptized them in pools. You say they had pools? Yeah, they had a number of pools in Jerusalem. They've been unearthed. Archaeology has confirmed that. You read about that in the New Testament. And so there were pools there to completely immerse them. This was not something new or strange to the Jewish people. They knew all about washings and immersions and things like that. Now, water baptism is included as a component of conversion. Listen, not because baptism causes conversion. It does not cause conversion. But because baptism is the symbol of conversion. 
Baptism is included as a component of conversion, not for the effect that baptism has on the soul, because baptism doesn't change the soul one whit, but for the declaration that baptism is supposed to be making to the entire world. Baptism, notice in your text, in the name of Jesus, is the symbol that you have been converted to Christianity. Baptism declares to the world, I have been convicted of my sins and I have now changed my mind. I now believe in Jesus Christ. I am a believer in Jesus Christ and I want all of the world to know that. I don't want to be a secret believer. He is my king. He is my, king. He is my Lord. He's my savior from sin. As I come out of the water and I I walk out of the steps or whatever it is, I want everyone to know, you can watch my life. I'm going to try to live for Christ now. So baptism does not cause your faith. Some Christian denominations get that wrong. Baptism does not cause your faith. Baptism declares your faith. Baptism does not save your soul. Baptism is the symbol of your soul being saved. And baptism is a really good symbol. It's a really good sign of true conversion for a number of reasons. And you can write these down. You just think about water baptism and what it portrayed. And I just want to give this to you so you can see why the Lord chose this as the symbol that he wanted for conversion. As one was dunked in the name of Jesus, what did that mean? That meant that a person was now identified with the name with which they were being baptized. If they were baptized into another name, then that would be that name that they were baptized into. You know, actually, some baptisms occurred in, uh, apart from any religious kind of setting, sometimes there would be bowls, and, and the ladies in particular would take clo- uh, uh, clothing, and they would dip them into the bowls in order to have a little bit of a dye color on them. That was called bapto. It was just dipping into a bowl. But when they really wanted to submerge it, they used the term baptism, baptisma. It was an intensive form of bapto, and it meant to put it all the way down in it and make sure that when the piece of cloth came out, it was all colored with that cloth, whether it was purple or whatever the dye color was that they wanted. In other words, the person immersed in that came out identified with that color. So now we're baptized into the name of Jesus. We're colored, so to say, with the color of Christ. He is our coloring. He is the one we're identified with. He now is the name that we carry around. John had a baptism. And people would ask, have you been baptized into John's baptism? John said, you know, I'm out here in the wilderness and I'm baptizing you with water. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm a voice in the wilderness. And I'm telling you, get ready because the Lord is coming. Make his pathway straight. And the purpose of his baptism was if you came out, you were humbling yourself and you were getting your soul ready for the arrival of the Lord in Israel. And so if you were baptized into John's baptism, people knew what that meant. That's why he's called John the Baptist. But John's baptism was only a preparatory kind of baptism. Jesus required his own baptism so that people would be identified with him. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, right? And then it's included right in there, baptizing them in the name of, and here you have the triune formula, the Father, the Son, that's Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And then when they come out of the baptismal waters, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 19, when the apostle Paul found some men who had been baptized by John the Baptist, 
he, he found that they had not been baptized by Jesus. They had not even heard of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he told them, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Their, their John's baptism was not good enough. Peter is basically saying the same thing right here. Notice again, this baptism is to be done in the name of Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. By the way, the same is seen in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 when the Apostle Paul was going to be baptized. Paul is reflecting on the time of his conversion in Acts twenty-two sixteen, And it says there, Ananias said to Paul, Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's Jesus' name. So as he was being baptized, he would be calling on the name of Jesus. Save me, Lord Jesus, basically. The name and the baptism went together. So there's absolute clarity about what the symbol meant to portray to everybody out there. Romans 10, 13 picks up on that. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, will be saved. Anybody who calls on the name of Jesus, there's nothing else more special you need to do. Just call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Now, the second reason that this is such a great symbol for conversion is the fact that the whole body has to go down into the water. And it is water. And what, is, what happens when your whole body goes down into a bath? Well, you, you, you're washed, right? You're cleansed. It's complete cleansing. It's total washing. Just as Ananias said to Paul, be baptized and wash away your sins. Do you think Ananias thought that the water on the outside of the body was actually going to wash away sin? Sin is not dirt on your skin. So he knew as he's talking with that language, he knew that it's symbolic of what's happening inwardly, that there's a washing of your soul before God. Why? Because we're dirty. Another way of understanding sin, what is sin? Sin's dirt. Sin is something that God sees as spoiled and stained and tainted and polluted and contaminated and it's mucky and, and it's, it's polluted. It's just not good. And he wants that washed up so you're presentable to God who's holy and pure. And baptism is the symbol of that. We know, of course, that water on the outside of the body cannot cleanse your soul. The real cleansing agent of your soul is the blood of Christ. We know that because it says in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Water doesn't do that. It takes the blood of Jesus. And how does that work? We don't really know. God just takes the blood of Jesus and he counts it as washing our souls clean of sin. And he uses the Holy Spirit to effect that cleansing because we read in Titus 3, 5 that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but how? But according to God's mercy by, here's the instrument, by the washing of, this would have been a great place to talk about baptism, but it's not there. The washing of regeneration, in other words, the new birth, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit takes the blood of Christ and causes us to be washed, causes us to have a whole new life. That's why the whole body has to go down in. Third reason that full body water baptism uh, is a good symbol of conversion is it indicates our death to the old life and our being raised to the new life. Symbolically, if you think about it, you go down into the water confessing your sins, confessing that your life is not worthy of God. So you go down and there's a sense in which you're buried. You're down all the way underneath. You're, you're done, gone, and finished. You're down under there. Of course, like with Christ's life, we don't want to leave him down there too long, right? 
very short time, and then you're raised to newness of life. So you go all the way down, and then you come back up, and now you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it symbolizes. Jesus died, and he was buried, and then he was raised to newness of life. So we are following him, and in Christ, it's symbolically that we are buried with Christ in baptism and then raised to newness of life. I want you to think about the fact that there are two races in the world. There is Adam's race and there's Christ's race. And everyone that is born into this world is born into Adam's race. Evolution never happened on this planet. It's a great place to remind people of that, isn't it? Evolution is not happening now. It never happened in time past. Evolution is not the origin of the human race. Um, the, The fossil record has denied evolution. Everything that we see today denies evolution. There's no mechanism to make evolution happen. It's not scientific. It's a religion. It's a farce. It's not true. There was one man and one woman. God made them, Adam and Eve. That is just as scientifically true as it is religiously true. And all of us are born from that one race, and in Adam we all die. That's what Romans 5 said. We're all part of that race, and we die. And that race has fallen. That race is rejected by God. That race, uh, the world that that race lives in has a curse on it. There's a new race. It's the race of Christ where we're born again, where we're put into a new family. We're put into a, a new kind of life. And that is life in Christ. And, and all of everything that God is going to do in the future depends upon you being in that new family, in that new race, in that new tribe, the tribe of Christ, you see. And so that's what we're symbolizing. The old guy in Adam or the old gal in Adam gone. The new person born again. Now, it's true we're not living perfectly after we're baptized, but it shows that God is is, is uh, causing that change in us and that, that new life is going to begin to emerge in us. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, it talks about this. It says, Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's why it's a farce to say you're converted and you don't begin to live a new life. Now, water baptism is also a great symbol of conversion, fourthly, because it is required of each individual believer. Did you notice that in verse 38? Let each of you be baptized. Didn't ask the fathers to come forward. Didn't ask the head of a tribe to come forward. Every single person out there, male, female, you have to step forward and you individually have to be baptized. Each individual must submit to baptism. Why? Because salvation is of an individual. God saves individual people. He doesn't save groups. He saves individuals. There's no group decision. If people around you make the decision for Christ, that doesn't count for you. You have to make the decision for Christ. Your parents cannot make you a follower of Christ. They can only pray for you, set an example for you, point the direction, teach you, correct you, but you have to make that decision. Each person humbled by their own conviction of sin, must declare publicly, I'm no good. I've done a self-evaluation. I've taken a look at myself. It's not because someone else said I'm no good. I've looked at myself, and I see that I'm not good. And I know I need Jesus to save me. Now, nowadays, in American Christianity, baptism doesn't seem so radical of a thing, right? It's just go into water, say a few words, come out. What really changed? It doesn't seem like a big deal. But for these Jews on this day of Pentecost, as Peter was preaching to them, taking a stand to say that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah was a big deal. It was a radical thing. There were 
basically saying an executed criminal named Jesus from the town of Nazareth is the one that they are declaring to be their king. And that left these Jews who would step forward for water baptism at this point in time, it left them no benefits whatsoever in the world. There were no benefits for them. It's not like they're going to get on the other side and they're going to throw a party that they'd been baptized. No, they would begin to be scrutinized. They'd begin to be looked at. Some of them would begin to be spoken against. Some of them would be put out of their synagogue. Some of them would be ostracized by their family. Some of them may lose their job just for being water baptized. A radical proposition. I wish we had more of a sense of that. Jesus said... In John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You're basically accepting persecution for your remaining days on this planet. For your remaining days living in the United States of America, you've said, it's okay to persecute me. I know where I'm headed. I know who I'm following. It's okay. I'm a follower of Christ. Come what may. So it's a beautiful symbol. It's individual. And though it's a symbol, please understand, please understand, baptism is commanded by Christ. He has told you, if you want to be my follower, after you repent, you have to step up and you have to be water baptized. Is Christ going to count you a follower of his if you refuse the water, the waters of baptism? I guarantee you back then, no one was accepted into the church. Nobody was accepted as a Christian unless they were willing to publicly identify with Jesus Christ and his gospel and his cross. You cannot be obedient to Jesus if you are not water baptized. If you are truly converted to Christ, you should want to be baptized. Listen, I'll tell you about myself. I was saved on the college campus. And I'd had what I thought was a baptism. It was an infant baptism. But as I studied Scripture, I realized I wasn't really baptized as an infant. That doesn't count. I'm, I'm a believer, but I'm an unbaptized believer. And I'd been witnessing from my faith. I was not ashamed of my Christianity at all. But I went three, three and a half, almost four years, I think it was, before I was baptized in water. Now, I was saved before that because water baptism doesn't save me. But I realized I need to be baptized. Jesus says this. I mean, I need to do it. I actually wanted to join a church, and the church wouldn't let me join because I hadn't been water baptized. And I kind of had a, you know, a hissy fit. I was all bothered about it. Wait a minute. I've been out there witnessing. I've been doing Bible studies, and you're not going to let me be a member of your church? They said, well, it says in the Bible you need to be baptized. Like, Well, I can't argue with that. So I submitted to it. But before I submitted to it, I realized, why am I arguing with this? It's my privilege to declare my faith in water baptism. It is a privilege to, to say the old Tom dies, bring forth the new Tom. And so I submitted to this, and I did that. And you need to do the same. If you've been waiting and wondering, you need, to, you need to submit to what Jesus Christ said. You need After you repent, you need to be baptized. That's what he said to do. On that day, how many souls were saved? 3,000, right? How many souls were baptized? I'll give you the answer. It's not 2,999. All 3,000 were baptized. It was required of everybody. Baptism was no afterthought. Baptism was no side issue. Today, you go to some churches, you don't even know. They don't celebrate the Lord's Supper, and you don't even hardly hear about baptism. I'm not sure that's a church. If they're not doing what Christ says, is that really a church? 
If you're not willing to be water baptized publicly, no one on the inside of the church or on the outside of the church should take your profession of faith seriously. It should be evident to everybody that baptism must never be administered to somebody before they believe. Isn't that obvious here? The order is crystal clear. Repent, then be baptized. Please notice what it does not say. It does not say, be baptized, and when you grow up, repent. It doesn't say that. The idea that you would baptize your children or baptize your infants or baptize your babies before they have repented in hopes that one day they will repent, in hopes that one day they'll be confirmed in their faith, is completely foreign to Peter's instructions and to the meaning of Christian baptism. I would hope that would be obvious to anybody reading these words. I would hope you'd be able to put out of your mind denominational tradition and read the text to see what it says in front of you. Isn't that obvious to you? You guys are looking up at me. Look down at the text and read it. Isn't the order obvious? Repent and be baptized. It's not so hard. What comes first? Repentance. What comes second? Baptism. Baptism is not the declaration of a parent's faith. It is not like circumcision, which God commanded parents to do under the old covenant. We are not under the old covenant. There is nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament, where God commands parents to baptize their babies. There was in the old covenant, and it was only the sons because it was circumcision. There was no initiatory right for the female in the old covenant. In the new covenant... It's different. It's not the same as the old covenant. Men and women, one by one, after they repent, then they get water baptized because it symbolizes the washing away of sins. Why submit to a symbol of washing away from sins if your sins haven't been washed away? Why say my old life is gone and my new life is here if you're just hoping that will happen for your children? Makes no sense at all. There are people whose conscience are so bound by infant baptism, they've even left our church so they could go and they could have their children baptized by another denomination. And I remember asking one guy, I said, are you willing to read a critique of infant baptism because I got a great book? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said no. Because his his mind and his heart were attached to the denomination and to the practice rather than to what the Word of God said. There is no command, no injunction, no exhortation, no example of baptizing children in the New Testament. It's just not there. I remember when Dr. MacArthur was debating with Dr. Sproul. They were great friends. And it was over baptism. You could still get the debate. And I remember how Dr. MacArthur started his debate after R.C. went into a number of what I would call gymnastics all over the Bible to try to make it all make sense. MacArthur just stood up and he said, the thing that is wrong about, this is not a quote, but it's pretty close to it. The thing that is wrong with infant baptism is it's not in the Bible. (laughs) It's a great way to start a debate, isn't it? You've you've taken a lot of time to tell us why, but actually if they wanted us to do it, they would have told us. But they didn't. Baptism is not the hope of future faith. Baptism is not the hope of influencing people that they might come to faith. 
Baptism is not placing people in a community of faith, whatever that means. It is the declaration of present faith. And if you're not old enough to understand, and you're not old enough to repent in any way that people can tell, you're not old enough for baptism. And that seems pretty clear to me. Now, one more thing we need to cover before we move on from baptism. Better check my clock here. Hang on a second. What we got left? That's just not fair. All right. It went dark. You know how it is. And I got to, had to revive it. Peter did not say baptism causes conversion. Peter did not say, as some read this verse, that baptism causes forgiveness of sins. Please look at that again. People have read this verse wrongly. Even some cults will base on this verse an insistence that if you're not water baptized, you are not born again. Even to a large extent, the Catholic Church teaches this. They, they believe you have to have water baptism or your sins are not forgiven. They require water baptism as a rite in order for someone to be saved. If you said you were saved and were not baptized and you died in between there, you would not go to heaven in their view. That idea is associated with a false doctrine called baptismal regeneration. That is, rather than the Holy Spirit causing your regeneration, rather than the Word of God being the agent of your regeneration, the waters of baptism through some power of the priesthood causes you to be born again. That is phony baloney. And if you know how the Holy Spirit works and you know and have tasted the power of God, you know that there is no external right that can happen to your body that is going to change your heart and make you godly before Christ. And that's not what Peter meant by these words, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The Greek preposition used in that phrase, it's uh, the preposition ice, is, it, and it's translated for, F-O-R, can mean either for the purpose of, or sometimes it can mean because of, because of. And that seems to be a better fit for this translation, or on account of the forgiveness of your sins. If you look at the order Peter gives here, it's implied that repentance is the driving force behind the forgiveness of sins, not the baptism. First, they repent. That's primary. That's causative to conversion. Then comes the baptism. That's consequence, not cause. Repentance brings forgiveness of sins. Baptism is closely connected to repentance because it's a symbol of that repentance and because no truly repented person would refuse baptism. And that's why it's so closely connected to it. If someone said, I've repented, but I don't want water baptism, we would doubt that they've really repented. It's not that the water baptism does anything. It's that the repentance does something. Whenever you come to a verse of Scripture that's difficult to interpret or that seems to contradict other Scripture or that seems to, to not say what sound teaching, teaching has always said, the best thing to do at that point in time is to do what theologians uh, call the analogy of Scripture, employ the analogy of Scripture. That is, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Put them side by side. Get out your Bible and make sure one verse is not saying something different from another. Put them together and everything will become clear. A lot of cults, they have this practice. They go from unclear verses to deny clear verses rather than doing what anybody would want to do if they were trying to understand the Bible and not manipulate the Bible. And that is start with... Uh, 
clear verses and use the clear verses to interpret the ones that are less clear. Doesn't that make sense? If you were listening to someone talk and they made a clear declaration and then they said something that you're not quite sure what they meant by that, wouldn't you interpret what you're not sure they meant by the clear rather than the other way around? But when it comes to God, they decide, let's take the more obscure thing and give it a little bit of twist and then deny the plain teaching of Scripture. And when we turn to the rest of Scripture, do we find anywhere that we're saved by good works? Do we find anywhere that we're saved by some religious rite, by some external thing? No, we do not. We turn to Galatians 2.16. It says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. There's not an action that you can do to save yourself. Or we turn to Titus 3.5, which we mentioned. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. Not, not through baptism, not through communion, not through this, not through that. It's just what he will do by his grace. Romans 11.6 says, if salvation is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't mix grace with works. You can't say we're saved by grace and also by works because then grace is gone. Grace has to be apart from any works. It says that in Romans 3.28 also. In fact, if you go to Luke's writings, and that's a great way to do kind of a study on this because Luke wrote the book of Acts, and so compare the gospel of Luke with the book of Acts and, and find out what it says about the forgiveness of sins. How do I get forgiveness of sins? And you do that study, you'll find out that there are times where repentance is required for the forgiveness of sins, and there's no mention of water baptism in those passages at all, which would be crazy if you had to be water baptized to get the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you an example. Luke chapter 24 and verse 47, Jesus is talking. He says, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all of the nations beginning from Jerusalem. No mention of water baptism, but there is a mention of repentance. Or go forward from chapter 2 and look in chapter 3 in Acts, verse 19. And it says there, therefore, repent and return. Those are uh, synonyms, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away. Again, mentions nothing about the requirement of water baptism. Or you go to Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, and it's talking about Jesus, and they're preaching again, and it says, Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and a savior to grant repentance to the nation of Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, no water baptism. And you just keep going through there again and again and again, and you see the requirement of water baptism is not there. Therefore, it cannot be essential to the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you an analogy. Saying water baptism saves you is like saying a wedding ring marries you. Now, I've done a lot of weddings, and it's a good thing to bring your wedding ring on wedding day. I can tell you that. You probably get a look from the bride if you forget that. But you can be pronounced man and wife without a wedding ring. You do realize that, right? You can go to the justice of the peace and not have a token and still be pronounced married. It's a symbol, guys. It's a symbol. How God works to change someone is on the inside. The water on the outside is a symbol. In fact, as you put this heresy to the test even more, and you study more deeply in the book of Acts, you can see that there was a man who was baptized and remained unsaved in Acts chapter 8, verses 13, and compare that with verse 21. And his name is Simon Magus. And uh, Peter basically says, you have no part or portion in this matter of salvation. And 
in the book of Acts, you can find a man who is not yet water baptized and was already saved, and his name is Cornelius, and you can read about him in Acts chapter 10. So what does that tell you? Water has no power. The Holy Spirit has the power. Do you remember even what John the Baptist said? I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who is mightier than I, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire, right? Water doesn't really do that much. The Holy Spirit does. Jesus, who condemned the ritualism of the Jews for trusting in their circumcision and trusting in their external washings and all of the things that they did, and he constantly condemned them for having an outward show of religion and not having the real heart of God in them, would hardly turn right around and then assign a new outside ritual to save his followers. That would make no sense at all. In fact... If you want to study this even more, if you go to Peter's first epistle, Peter clarifies what he himself means by baptism in chapter 3 and verse 21. He says this, now listen to this, corresponding to that, now he's talking about Noah's uh, flooding the ark and the the, the ark passing through the waters that happened with the universal flood. Corresponding to, to Noah's flood, baptism now saves you. And then he adds this, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. That is repentance. He tells you baptism saves you, not the outward right, not the water on the skin, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. But what really saves you now is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Paul made it very clear that no ritual on the outside of your body can save your soul. He wrote that performing water baptisms wasn't really much of a part of his ministry as an apostle at all. In fact, when they were boasting about which apostle or which great name or which great preacher that they were behind in, in, uh, in Corinth, he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he said, you know, some of these people are saying, I am of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of this person or that person, and there were factions and divisions in their church. And he said... He actually wrote this. He said, I thank God. This is 1 Corinthians 1.14. I thank God that I baptized none of you. Now imagine if you could only be saved through water baptism. What Paul would be saying is, I thank God none of you got saved. It's ludicrous, isn't it? And then he remembered an interesting insight into how the inspiration of Scripture happens. And he says, except Crispus and Gaius, and then he says, oh, and there was one other household, and he remembers doing that. So you're going to look in vain all over your New Testament to see salvation by water baptism or forgiveness of sins by water baptism. So we don't get baptized to get saved. Why do we get baptized? We get baptized to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. We get baptized to tell the world that we are saved, and so they will know that. I want to ask you a question. Have you been baptized in water after you repented of your sin? Some of you were baptized when you were younger, like me. And you might say, I don't need to be baptized. I've already been baptized. Does God count that as a baptism? If the order is clear, repent and be baptized, and that is not the order you followed, then you're unbaptized. My mother went through this very difficulty because she... um, 
was prayed for by all of the Presbyterian missionaries in the entire country of Iran. Her father, her biological father, was best friends with the Shah of Iran. And uh, so she had some very high up connections in that country before the Muslim takeover. And at her christening, at her baby baptism, all the missionaries in the entire country, as the story has been handed down to me, came and prayed over her that uh, she would be saved. And they administered a Presbyterian baptism. Now, Presbyterians don't believe that baptism saves you, but they do believe in infant baptism. Well, mom always treasured that story. And after she got saved, she realized it was probably the prayers of those missionaries that led to her coming to faith. And so she rejoiced in that. Uh, Mom and dad went to a Methodist church uh, growing up, and then they switched over to a Presbyterian church later. And um, she started coming here, and um, we started teaching, you have to be baptized as a believer. And she went to her her pastor uh, at that time, sort of an overlapping of two churches at that time, and she went to that pastor and she said, "Um, I want to be baptized as a believer. And the pastor said, that's fine, Lana, but you'll have to renounce your first baptism. And he used that word, renounce. And that hit her conscience hard because she couldn't renounce what God had done in her life, you see. And so she came to me and she said all that. And it took a while, but I just, I I taught her. I said, "You, you can't renounce a baptism that never happened. Because it's not a baptism. You can thank God for all of those missionaries who prayed for you. You can thank God for your Christian parents. You can thank God for all of that. But you have never been baptized and you need to be. And so we had the joy of baptizing her at Faith Bible Church in Elkridge, Maryland. And their baptismal there. And it was a glorious day. And there are other people in the congregation who have gone through that, that same thing. And it's a process that you have to go through in your conscience. But the Word of God should be that which controls your conscience. Now, this is absolutely the worst Sunday for me to be ranting and raving about water baptism because there is no baptismal here <laughs> at all. Why God chose this time in order to talk about water baptism, I'm not quite sure, but you give Sean Morton all the problems you want and you tell him you want to be water baptized and he'll figure out a way to get you totally immersed and under the water. And no sprinkling, Sean, and no pouring either. Actually, with the sick, they did pour. When they were too sick to be immersed, they did compromise a little, and they did do pouring in the early church. We read about that in church history. But the symbolism of immersion is it's still very important. So I'm going to leave it there and leave that to your conscience. You should be baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should not delay. Um, you, we have a, just a two-night class that you can take just to make sure you understand baptism. Um, And then we want to get you to um, have your water baptism. If you're too shy to speak, you can at least stand up and say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and you can be water baptized. And we'll leave that as the application for you. Whereas you guide your children, when are they old enough to be baptized? When you know that their decision is a life decision. And that's why the younger children, it's harder to tell. And there's no guidance on the actual age for that. But uh, each of you needs to think about being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ and making a public declaration of your Christian faith, okay? Join me in prayer, and then we're going to have our Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, thank you that today we can focus on these two ordinances. And they're called ordinances because you commanded both of them. You never told the church it was an option. They're both to be done. We're to be water baptized, and then we're to take communion. And Lord, even when we're sin- we've sinned, we're to take communion. And Lord, we, we just pray that... 
you would help us to understand the beauty of these two pictures of Lord's Supper and water baptism and see what it conveys about our relationship to you and our relationship to one another and about that wonderful work of your Holy Spirit that you do inwardly, which is the real work that we covet and we're grateful for, that forgiveness of sins that we'll get to talk about next time. Pray it now in Christ's name. Amen.